We're there to help them. A lot of our guys know them by name. With the follow-ups, we call it a crisis follow-up, crisis intervention team follow-up, where our guys know that they'll be out of a facility, say, in 10 days or eight days, and they will find times to go by and go visit a couple, two or three times since I've been constable. These people have come out and hugged the officers. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Hope Peace Together. This is a show that gets real about mental health struggles and how to overcome them. Here you'll find personal stories, practical tools, and professional insight for the journey towards mental well-being, whether that's for yourself, a loved one, or the community around you. This is a place where hope is definitely alive. Welcome to the show with your host, Sherry Burkhardt. Welcome to the Hope Peace Together podcast. This is your host, Sherry, and I'm excited today to have Constable Cash in with us to talk a little bit about the mental health constables for Montgomery County. This is what some people say uh, just a secret that they didn't know about. And when they hear about it, they're just so impressed and grateful that that's present in our county. So we want to make sure and share this information with the community. So welcome, Constable Cash. Good morning. It's an honor to be here this morning. So tell us a little bit about your personal background and what led you to bring this to Montgomery County. Well, I started my law enforcement career in 1988 and through the Harris County Sheriff's Academy and graduated and came to work in Montgomery County. And I've been here most of my career was in Montgomery County and 22 years of that was in narcotics and violent gang enforcement in our community here. With that being said, a lot of the people that we dealt with had mental illness and they used drugs to cope with it, mm-hmm. bipolar, schizophrenia, different things. But what I'd seen through my career, there was no one out there helping these people, not just the drug addicts, but the citizens. We call them consumers. With that in mind, when I ran for constable, the constable's office had nine deputies that were assigned to mental health transports. When a loved one or a family member at a hospital, they would pick them up and take them to a facility under court order. So we decided when I was running for office to expand that program to the crisis intervention team, which is what we have now in, mm-hmm. in the community. So seeing that and working with veteran groups, when you listen to the community, you see things that are needed. Most law enforcement over the years have shied away from mental health. They even have policies that we didn't agree with at the constable's office on, say, a person is talking about hurting themselves or committing suicide. They had policies. If they're by themselves and they're not hurt anyone else, you give them 15 minutes and then you leave. You know, we take a pledge as a peace officer in Texas and across the country to protect and serve. Sometimes we have to protect people from themselves. So I'm real excited about our recent commissioner's court. The court awarded us 10 more mental health deputies. So that's being funded through the American Rescue Plan Act, not through our local taxes. So it's exciting for us because there is problems and gaps in our community where we can better address the person when they're in mental health crisis. So it's been something I have very passionate about. If you talk to my employees and people that know me, it's something I've seen that we needed in this community and that we're, we're able to provide that service even better. Now. And That's I'm so grateful for that. We often have people call you guys and just hear the praises about what you guys do. I do think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the mental health constables do. Can you fill us in on what their role is? Our primary mission is to help those in crisis. It started out 
like I said, with the just going to the hospital when, a, when an ambulance, a deputy or a police officer would go to deal with someone in a mental health crisis, they'd load them in an ambulance, take them to the hospital. It started a process. They tie up an emergency room when most times they don't need an emergency room. Not at a medical hospital. They need to be at a psychiatric care center. So with that in mind, we started our CIT program, Crisis Intervention Team, that will respond to these calls all over the county. And in most cases, they can take the person, and we take them straight to Tri-County, to PETC, and let them get evaluated there. And then if they need to be placed, we'll place them. They'll give us an order to place them in whatever mental health facility there is available at the time. So we also do a follow-up, crisis follow-up, where we visit these people. When we know they've tried to hurt themselves or they're a, a person that we get a lot of calls on, we start checking on them. And a lot of times we don't have enough to do an emergency detention order, but our officers know these people and they talk to them. And a lot of times they'll take a voluntary ride with us to see their counselor. And sometimes, probably 98% of the time, they self-admit mm-hmm. they need help. And we're catching them before they get to that where they're in full psychosis or, or, you know, at the end of the trial, basically, where they need emergency help. So that program is working really good. The people in the community that have family members and loved ones, they know who we are now. For a lot of, a lot of them do. So they call us and we want to do, continue doing these follow-ups with them. We also, the mental health professionals that work with consumers will call us if they have one that they haven't heard from for a while. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be checking in. And that gives us, Without a court order, we can go and talk to them just to see what's up and ask them, hey, let's go see your counselor or contact them. And it's been very successful. Prior to COVID, now, you know, the Montgomery County with Judge Wayne Mack and a lot of other people that work with suicides, mental health, Mm -hmm. started the Montgomery County Suicide Task Force, which we were a big part of that also. We've seen before COVID a decline in calls. So with kids and with adults. So, you know, making it the public aware to call when a loved one's having stress problems or even the person that's causing them to have the ideology to hurt themselves. We've seen a decline, but when COVID hit, we've seen an increase. So COVID's affected not just people with suicidal ideas, but also mental health consumers. The idea that something this bad is going on really kicks off their psychosis. Right. It really has. And and I think even what we talk about on the task force is it's it's been an increase not only in those regular consumers, but in people who hadn't been consumers before. Well people, you know, this it's made the world unstable. People are losing jobs. Their income, their families are suffering. They're not used to you know, we we live pretty stable lives in America for the most part. And this destabilized the whole country, people mm-hmm. not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring. And people that have mental health issues or are on the borderline, this will, will kick that off. The community needs to know that we're here to help. Also, the way our officers are trained, there's some, I call them professionals because they are. They have specialized training in mental health and how to deal with mental health patients. We also downgrade their uniforms. They don't wear patches. They wear a shirt, blue shirt, and khaki pants. They also, they're Vehicles they use are police vehicles, but they don't have any police logos or anything like that on them. So we try to follow the best practices for mental health. Well, that helps it be less intimidating yes. to those people. That's what we try to tell other and in the law enforcement community in a whole. 
are grateful for what we do because we're taking something off their hands. That it's very time consuming sometimes, but we're taking charge and letting them go back to being policemen, doing the criminal side. Let us do the civil side, which this falls under the civil side and it gets our policemen, our sheriff's deputies, our other constables back on the streets where they need to be enforcing, working on the criminal side. But they help us tremendously on calls. They'll show up and help us. But once we have it under control, they're free to go back in service. Also with our EMS doing the transports, we have cut back on having to tie up an ambulance. Right. On a call where just this last week, bringing a person to a hospital with a mental health issue was a two and a half hour wait. If we can get them directly to Tri-County, it saves taxpayers money. Right. So, you know, if they've hurt themselves or said they've ingested medicine or or anything, they have to go to the hospital to be evaluated. Or if they have fever or any other COVID symptoms, they have to go to the hospital. But most cases, they don't. So we can get them straight to a place of better care. Which makes so much sense because it just helps the whole system run better when we're not tying things up for things that they aren't meant to do. We also ask if you have a loved one that is not taking their medicine, that's probably the biggest call we get. They're off their meds and acting weird again or doing something strange. That's when they need to contact us. Don't wait till they're in full psychosis. If they just call our non-emergency, you know, don't, if it's 911, if it's an emergency, but the non-emergency number for Montgomery County, the Sheriff's Department dispatches all the constables in the county. So if they call that and, and reach out to one of our mental health deputies, we're on from 6 in the morning till 2 in the morning, seven days a week. So if they see this coming on, call us and let us take care of it for them. We'll come talk to them, and we want them to be comfortable calling us anytime there's an issue. Don't wait till it's to that point where uh, they're in full psychosis. That's really important. How are the constables trained different than regular police officers? Well, they have the same basic training, but in my office, include myself and my administrative staff, we go through the mental health state certification course. And then we take advanced CIT courses. Periodically, we put them on this. You know, COVID hurt us because none of the instructors could make training. Mm-hmm. We'd schedule, you know, and someone would get COVID or whatever. But we've increased that again. We're set up to start training again. But we put on uh, everything from dealing with juveniles with mental health issues to hostage negotiations because I work with these guys not full time because I have other duties, but I've been with them up to six hours on a scene where someone's holding a gun to their head and they talk that person. It took six hours to convince them not to hurt themselves. But you got to have a special personality. Mm-hmm. You can't be a strong. Most policemen are a personality to start with. You can't have that strong a personality. You got to have passion and be able to talk to people. And most hostage negotiators you see for any agency, they have that's basically the same kind of person you want that can show passion and talk and relate and talk these people down from whatever crisis they're in. I think that that is definitely a skill. And to be able to be that calm in a crisis makes well, a big my difference. My lieutenant's famous for saying, this is my name, and you're going to hate my name. I'm not leaving because <laughs> you're going to hear my name. You're going to hear my voice over and over again. And what I've seen on some of these calls is, you know, there were a person maybe a year ago we dealt with them. A lot of these people don't forget things. Mm-hmm. Not, just because they have a mental illness don't mean they're a, a street person or someone that that's these are they're normal people that just have a you know one in four Americans in their lifetime will have some kind of mental crisis. 
whether it's depression or anywhere from schizophrenia or bipolar or whatever. So it's not an uncommon issue we have, but everybody, it affects people differently. So it's all walks alive, rich or poor, but we treat everybody the same. They get the same professionalism from our office. One of the things I say is that mental health issues, they don't discriminate. It doesn't matter where you're living, what money you're making, what job you have, what your political background, your religious background. I mean, it affects, it can affect anyone. Yeah, we're the law enforcement side, but our primary mission is to get someone's, someone to a place of better care that can help them. We're not on the treatment side, but we're on the preventive side where we can follow up and talk to people. And if a loved one calls says, can you come talk to my son or my daughter or my husband, my wife, my grandparent, whatever it is, you know, we want to be that agency they're comfortable with calling. The mentality has changed the last few years on mental health. It used to be, you know, your your strange uncle, you kept him in the room in the back <laughs> of the house and the neighbors would barely see him or whatever. But you know, America has become more open about let's help these people. They're American citizens or citizens of another country that live here. But they're still people. So you have to have that passion to want to help. So when would someone want to contact the mental health constable versus calling 911? Because I think sometimes that's the confusion of, is this, you know, when I call 911 or is this when I call the constable? Most of our 911 calls are when someone, we have a person on the north end of the county. He has a tendency to walk out in the highways and streets in front of traffic, preaching to the sun. I mean, he has... He's a regular consumer we deal with. That's a 911 call. You know, if if they're tearing up stuff in the house or they're threatening to do bodily harm to somebody or, you know, where the, the violent tendencies are coming out, that's definitely a 911 call. Calls where they're fusing, like, you know, the medicine actually helps them. But once they, a lot of them, once they start feeling better, they quit taking the medicine. I don't need it anymore. They don't see that themselves as declining mm-hmm. in their condition, but a loved one would see that. You know, they're starting to become disruptive and seeing things that's, you know, they know that's coming on. It's, that's a call. Hey, they can call our office or call, call dispatch. And during the week, they can call our office and call dispatch after hours. We can have someone come and respond, usually more than one. What about for juveniles? Because I think that that's a lot of calls that we get where maybe there's a threat to run away or they have run away. Would that be mental health constable? In some cases, usually a lot of that is dealt with through the schools, through the resource. A lot of that happens during school. We do get a lot of calls from schools, school officers. A lot of times it's drug use. Okay, that's not, they're taking drugs at school. That's not really something we would handle. Mm Mm-hmm unless the court ordered us to. And we do get Judge Laird is our mental health judge for Montgomery County. And she issues warrants every day for us to go pick people up at their house, at a school, at a business, wherever they're at, and take them to a place to be evaluated you know, for mental health issues. There's hospitals here that deal with children with mental health issues. Those are something that they may want to set an appointment up and get them evaluated. But we, a normal officer or everyday police officer would take a report on a runaway and then recover the runaway. But that would be something the parents would have to get involved with, getting them some help. Right. Right. It's not something we would respond to when a kid runs away unless they're having, you know, we do have kids that, that suffer from mental illness that will run away. That's, we would get involved in that. 
And we well, would, and those are usually the ones that we're receiving the calls that there's some kind of mental health issue. Yeah. They have prior diagnosis and when we recover them, that, that could be some. Our officers talk to them and ask certain questions, and, you know, their ideologies, what, what they're thinking about doing to them themselves and all that. And that will determine whether or not they have to do an emergency a detention order. Sometimes it takes the parents having to go to the county attorney or the guardians and filling out a mental health warrant that authorizes us to go take them to a facility. I think one of the pictures that sticks in my head, and it was in an art, I think it was, I don't know which community impact or what it was, but it was the article on you guys and the changes since COVID, but it has a picture and I think it's on the website too, where you are kind of bending down. I don't know if it's you, but one of the constables bending down, talking to a girl who's clearly struggling. So I like to point that out because I think people think, you know, with a constable or police officer, not necessarily getting down on the level of the person struggling and meeting where they are. And I think that picture really well, shows that, that. that. also shows you how they dress. They're not there with all these patches and our offers will wear bulletproof vests. You have to protect yourself. <laughs> but, you know, they downgrade the way they talk and act. Some things that you learn work with them, a lot of them will hold something in their hand. It's not a weapon to them. It's a comfort. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a Bible or a brick or a bottle or stick, whatever they can find, it has something to do with giving them some security while they're in psychosis. Some We'll look at that as they're being dangerous or put down the weapon, put down this. You know, if you back away and start your, your negotiations with them and talking to them and de-escalating, that's an issue in the past where they're disobeying a police officer and then they get arrested and they end up in our jail where it could have been something handled a little different where they ended up in a, in a mental health facility. So there's things like that that you learn as you right. with mental health patients or consumers. We have a large homeless population in Montgomery County, mainly around Conroe and then some in Willis. Not all those people are mental health consumers. They just, it's a lifestyle they want to live. The consumers you see in those groups are usually ones by themselves, talking to themselves. They don't want to be around other people. They're sort of loners. We had one in the other day at a bank that was causing an issue, and we were able to de-escalate it and get him to a place where he needed to be with that could have very quickly turned into a criminal side law enforcement issue where he would have ended up in jail. And he was just having a, a mental health issue. So we see a lot of that in our community. The law enforcement agencies are now online. They call us a lot mm-hmm. every day. And we're here to help them help with whatever problem they have. But sometimes it's a drug-related issue and not a mental health issue. So sometimes it's a public intoxication instead of a mental health issue. Certain drugs like uh, methamphetamine, dextromethamphetamine, uh, when they abuse it, they stay awake for days at a time and start hallucinating, seeing and hearing things. It's, it's clinically indistinguishable with a person that's a paranoid schizophrenic. And what's sad, it damages them and, and it's permanent on a lot of them. But they hear and see things just like a paranoid schizophrenic would. And bad things going to happen to them kind of stuff. Well, and it's true, and it could be really alarming to the family. I know there was a gentleman I was talking to, and he was seeing what he called tree people. And so the parents were concerned because they were like, well, maybe he's actually now schizophrenic. And I'm like, well, no, I think he's actually still coming down, you know. And and so learning to distinguish that and what's going on. Yeah, I've seen a lot of it. 
when I worked in the drug side of my career, they're seeing and hearing things. They see, in a lot of cases, for the drug people, it's policemen everywhere. Policemen, helicopters are all policemen. The, the edge of the woods are policemen watching them. What I've seen with the abuse of dextromethamphetamine, which is the common methamphetamine we see now, is they can get other addicts to see the same thing. It's like group hallucination. Mm-hmm. They'll point at something, and that's that's not a bush. That's a policeman in camouflage, and then the other one starts seeing it. It's a sad effect of what the, some of these illegal drugs do to, to the public. Yeah, it's really definitely hard and scary for the family that's watching it. What are instances, we talked a little bit about things where maybe they wouldn't call you, but one of the things we didn't talk about was maybe an older person that might be struggling with dementia. You know, we will respond. A lot of those cases, a lot of those are going to be, they have to go to the hospital or to a family member. That's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's and most mental health, like schizophrenia, schizophrenia and bipolar, that can be treated with drugs and you can get them to a better place. You can do that with the people suffering from the dementia and Alzheimer's. But on schizophrenics and bipolar, you know, the medications can bring them to a good normal for them. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. So that's the problem we have with when I said it earlier. They start feeling better. They don't like the way it makes them feel, but they're actually feeling, you know, they're back to where they can be part of society. Then they digress because they won't take their medicine. It's a big difference. Uh, we do get called a lot to those type calls, but once you know, it, it take that's more, it becomes more of a medical and a family issue. How are we going to take care of this person? Because there's no medicine that's going to bring them back to normal. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's a progression that you know starts and then gets worse. But it's sad. I wish there was medicine for it, but it affects a lot of people, so especially elderly people. I just thought it was helpful because when you and I had done the pre-interview, we talked about that and I hadn't thought about that before as far as that not necessarily being in the wheelhouse just because of the nature of it and the medical nature of it. So if a constable has to take someone to a facility, you mentioned that y'all typically go to Tri-County, but how is that handled? Does the, the Do they just drop them off or? Well, no, we pick them up. You know, first we evaluate them. So a lot of times an ambulance may be there. Are they okay to go with us or, you know, well, no, their blood pressure's out of whack. They're admitted swallowing a handful of pills or razor blades or whatever they swallowed, you know, and they have to be medically cleared. So they get checked into a hospital. But our officers will take them if they're clear. Mm-hmm. Most cases, they're not handcuffed. They're not, unless they're violent, they're just placed in a vehicle, put a seatbelt on, and we drive them. And a lot of them have been to Tri-County before or Petsy. Once they get there, we bring them in, and they're evaluated by the staff. They have a you know the medical staff there that evaluates them. Uh, sometimes, if they're very aggressive, they'll stay in our car. Our car has a the separator, the cage in there, keep them from getting out. Mm-hmm. But the evaluator will come out and talk to them at the vehicle if they're so far you know in full psychosis, and then they will give us an order. Sometimes they keep them there for a few hours, and then they will release them. At which time they can call us. We'll bring them back home. Most cases, they find a, a place for them. Most of ours are in Harris County or in Montgomery County. Sometimes we go to the state hospitals in Vernon and Rusk and Austin for juveniles. But the process from there is they'll call us when they're ready to be transported, and we will take them to a mental health facility. Same way. They, they're not handcuffed. They're not, you know, they're 
They're just a consumer with a mental health issue. That's why we look at it. Well, I think that's so comforting for families to know because it often, for them, you know, they may not be violent per se, but the family member can more easily trigger that person because of just the nature of the family dynamics and relationships. So, and, and, you know, I said there earlier, a lot of these consumers, we may deal with them once a year. We may deal with them once a month. They begin to know what we are about and we're not there to hurt them. They are scared of law enforcement. They are scared, you know, they're, they're paranoid apart on schizophrenic, but we're there to help them. A lot of our guys know them by name. With the follow-ups, we call it a crisis follow-up, crisis intervention team follow-up, where our guys know that they'll be out of a facility, say, in 10 days or eight days. And they will find times to go by and go visit a couple, two or three times since I've been constable. These people have come out and hugged the officers. Oh, wow. For saving their life. And I get, you know, I get the letters and communications from one was a veteran, they sent a really nice letter and said, you know, the, the gist of it was I was in the darkest, it was over the holidays, the darkest time in my life. And your guy saved my life. Little things like that. And, you know, everything's about if you can save one life, you've accomplished something. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the kind of feedback we get from the community, the families, everybody, the neighbor. Sometimes it's neighbors that contact us because they're the ones that see the the person going right they start to see the decline yeah they'll call us and they call us and thank you and we give them the cards call us anytime you see them start digressing please call us so we can help that's our theme this year and the theme of our gala is for the one because it can get overwhelming because there is you know so much need out there and so we you know remind ourselves every day that we're doing this just for that one person. If, if that's all we help, that's plenty. Well, last week, just to give you an idea, we had 90 calls in seven days in Montgomery County. I have 14 deputies right now, including supervisors. I had two out with COVID issues. I had one on vacation. So it, we were shorthanded, but mm-hmm. we still were able to accomplish 90 calls for mental health services in Montgomery County. From the last two years, we're up about 65% in mental health calls. It's picking up. You know, COVID is a big part of that. And, and the funding we got for our new officers is from the American Rescue Plan Act that was signed by the president. And the first thing, if you look at that act, it's is to help America get back to, to normal. The very first thing on that act is mental health in our community. So our, our senators and congressmen and our presidents understand, I think they have an understanding of how that's affecting America. And the world, but mm-hmm. you know we have to deal with America. So, and we have to deal here with Montgomery County. So, we're here to help, and we're going to continue doing that and going forward and striving to do the best we can and for our our mental health consumers in Montgomery County. So, are there other circumstances besides COVID? We've determined, I think, for all of us that COVID has increased the calls. But when we were doing our interview, there's other times that you start to see a rise in calls. Just an example, when we had the ice storm, it was terrible for first responders, for firemen, ambulance, policemen, mental health deputies to respond because all the roads were covered with snow and ice. Our average speeds were about 20 miles an hour. <laughs> we had a person in the county that was blaming herself for the ice storm, the snowstorm, and it pushed her to the point of psychosis where it's nine degrees outside and she's outside having an emotional state, not prepared for the cold weather and stuff over this. Hurricanes, when a hurricane is approaching, as a person that doesn't suffer from mental illness, we worry. We stock up water. We 
canned goods or gasoline for our generators, whatever we do, move our families to another part of the state. But we know it's coming. We take that in stride and we prepare for it. Where a person that suffers from paranoia or, or schizophrenia, some of these other mental health diseases, they come fixated with that issue and it takes over their lives. The worry, the worry, the worry that we're not going to make it. Everybody's going to drown. Everybody's, you know, it's a terrible feeling for them. But we'll see an increase in calls when those type of events happen. So anything that triggers, it could be something, you know, China is in America is arguing about islands. and But to them, it become, they become fixated on it and it, it affects them mentally and it, it pushes them over the edge a lot of times. Where a normal person can, when I say normal, a person that doesn't suffer mental illness, your mind will work through that. A lot of them, they can't. It just takes over their lives. I know a guy personally that several years ago when they evacuated Houston during a hurricane, became homebound for six or eight months. It scared him so bad, and he suffers from schizophrenia. That's how it affects them. He was so worried, and that's all they talk about and all they think about. Right. They start ruminating on that. and It becomes their whole life. Well, I think that other thing I saw during the last hurricane when so many people were displaced, they are get displaced without their medication. So that was another issue. We had the evacuation center for Harvey at the Lone Star Convention mm-hmm. Center. And we assigned, you know, the mental health, Petsy and them had people there at the to deal with the evacuees. And we had our officers there about 12 hours a day. And, you know, a lot of people that didn't have issues before, their house was flooded, their, every, their whole lives were destroyed. When they got to the evacuation center, and got time to just sit and relax and think, it pushed them over the edge. We had a lot of people that we took to Petsy and to mental facilities to help them through that crisis. I mean, they just, I mean, they've lost everything. They couldn't find loved ones. Phones didn't work. Families couldn't find each other. It was pretty sad, but they would start having issues, mental health issues. And we were blessed to have the mental health professionals there, right there to deal with them right there. Plus we would, take them wherever they ask us to take them. So that lasted during the whole recovery. So there's a lot of very, very professional people in our community that care about our mental health and the mental health of our citizens. So I'm proud to be part of that. We're a small part of it, but we're the law enforcement side part of that. But just when you see the whole, you know, we see it in action every day. So when you see how everything fits and how everything works, it is short funded, just like anything else. Our state is ranked in the, we were 51st last year for behind Puerto Rico and I think Vermont or New Hampshire. Uh, this year we're in the low 40s, 47, 48 in mental health for our citizens in Texas. So we've got a lot of catching up to do. We sure do. <laughs> I recently said, I don't like to be last and <laughs> Texas <Right>. is last. <laughs> well, you know, Texas is a big state. It, it really is. Especially when you compare it to small states. But I think we're on the right track. I know there was some funding to refurbish our mental health hospitals a couple of years ago, $370 million, I believe, is what they put to start the process for the state hospitals. Mm-hmm. But we need more. We need. There's a lot of people we deal with that need long-term care, six months a year, but there's no place for them to go. And that's sad. When we see That's the ones we see repeatedly. Right, and the family's hands are tied, and I think that's where it gets so complicated. Well, even if, even if you have money, sometimes you can't yeah. find a place, or insurance, you can't find a place. They're busy, and they're adding more. A lot of the private facilities are, have increased their bed space. 
one facility actually added a wing for first responders. Mm-hmm. They I'm did. Really proud of that because we deal with that a lot. In my office, I recognized the problem a long time ago, but we actually have a program where our officers, our, our employees can go set an appointment and talk to a counselor and we never know about it other than the billing side, but it doesn't have their name on it. And we had seven in one month. I want them to do that. I want right. them to be able to, and it, you know, we're no different than anybody else, except we see a lot worse than most people see. But first responders, EMS people, people work in the medical field that deal with this daily, not just mental health, but other issues. They have to have a release too. And sadly, when people deal with stresses in life, they go to uh, illegal substances. Alcohol is not illegal, but they deal with their stress and their issues by using illicit drugs, or they overprescribe themselves with prescription drugs. It's a never-ending cycle, but we got to break that cycle. And the more we address mental health issues and find ways to treat and help people, I think it better as a whole, our community and our country and the world would be a better place. I agree. And that one of the other things we've been I've been telling my staff and have to remind myself as a mental health responder in this area is that sometimes we have to be the one. And if we don't take care of ourselves, then we cannot show up for other people. And so that's really important to continue to do. And I know for first responders and myself as a nurse and seeing how this is all impacted that. I love how you guys, the more I listen to you talk is that you are really establishing relationships with the consumers in our community. So yeah. it's not about just showing up for a call. You're you're getting in there with that person and establishing that relationship. One of the things you've talked about is call us before they get off medication. What about if you know someone who's sober and then they've relapsed? Is that something you guys would want to know about as well? If it affects their mental conditions, mm-hmm. yes, we, you know, we, we can talk to them. It's a difference between us and it. We don't like the drug addiction side where they're just addicted to drugs. That's something that it, it would be a, where we can't just take them on that. Right. You know, it's something a court, if the judge gives us the court order, that's where some, someone had to get involved with the county attorney's office and with the, the judge's office to issue us the warrant to permission slip to go get them and take them to a place for treatment or whatever. You know, they do suffer. They don't eat. They don't sleep, whatever the issues are, that it will affect them sooner or later mentally. But it's it's something that uh, that would be handled a little different than what our guys do. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're mainly looking for people to stay on their meds and also the ones that have uh, suicidal, you know, ideas, make sure they're back, and, you know, because a lot of times that's temporary. It's a, you know, sadly, suicide is a, a permanent fix for a temporary problem. Mm-hmm. I'll say reach out and tell somebody. Most of our, our, our calls we get, they've texted somebody, they've called a loved one, they've called 911, I'm going to kill myself. That's an outcry. That is the outcry. We, we ask people what, if they're going to hurt themselves to make an outcry. That could be the outcry they make, the only outcry they make. And we want to be able to help them. They're making that outcry. Whether we, we're successful or not, all we can do is try I mean, and try hard. So. Mm-hmm. But that is an outcry. There's a reason they made that outcry. They want help. So that, that's, you know, that's hard to explain that, but it's, it's just, uh, to me, that's their first outcry a lot of time. Text and love when I don't want to live anymore. That's the outcry. Get a hold of us. 
You know, it's sometimes it's difficult to find them because they may be driving in a car. They may be not at home. They may, but give us the head start and we'll start working it on our end. And we can also, if someone, if we find someone and they won't respond, we may have enough for the county attorney to issue the warrant for us to, to forcefully, if we have to go in their house or find them, gives us the warrant to get them to a place of better care, not to jail. You know, it's, it's, we're trying, you know, the jail, the, the jails and prisons are full of people with mental health issues, but they still committed crimes. And with mental health, they're not always at that point. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's where the forensic side comes in. Were they in psychosis when they committed this crime? Or, yeah, we know they have a mental health issues, but were they being rational? Their mind is working as a rational mind when they committed that crime. That's the forensic side. It's something that our district attorney has to deal with, you know, when they decide whether or not to forego it, take a case to court or, or, you know, not take it to court. So it's very expensive to the taxpayers, too. It's, you know, it's a forensic side. But the way our laws are, it's, you know, we have a veterans court now. Yes, we do. Veterans that may have done a crime because of their PTSD, they're having some issues. This county has taken a lot of steps to separate mental health from crime. So I'm proud of our DA for that and our other law enforcement officials and our judges that take a minute to look at that. So I know it's really definitely wonderful. You also said you would be involved if there was a mental health warrant. We've thrown that out a few times, but explain if a family feels like there's something and there needs to be a warrant, what would be that process? A lot of times we get calls you know, for emergency a detention order, it has to be fresh. Mm-hmm. can't be something they did two weeks ago or three weeks ago. A lot of times when you talk to the family, this has been going on for three or four months, but they didn't call us when it was going on, okay? We have to follow the laws, you know, the, our state law, federal law on civil rights and everything else. We don't want to violate people's rights. So in those cases, they would go to the county attorney's office. They'll be referred there. And there's, you know, this, this, our funding's also paid for an attorney now just to work mental health with us. And they've done a great job with the attorneys they have, but they have other responsibilities. But we will have one attorney now that's our point of contact. And we call them daily. Mm-hmm. We have a very good working relationship with the county attorney. And the family will do affidavits and the affidavits will go to the judge. The judge will review it, and if she sees there's enough there, she will issue a mental health warrant. The warrant is issued through the judge, Judge Laird, in most cases. Judge Laird, we get a copy of the warrant. The warrant's very specific, telling us where to take the person. Take them. They've already made arrangements through, you know, the mental health professionals. This person's going to go to this location, and we will pick them up and, and drive them to that location. Sometimes it's in Bel Air. Sometimes it's in Katy. They can it can go anywhere. We try to as much as we can locally, but these facilities get overwhelmed sometimes. Mm-hmm. So they have to reach out to other facilities. So, but that's the mental health warrant side. We serve a lot of those. That's almost a daily thing. But prior to COVID, we'd actually seen a sixty percent reduction. Oh wow! Attorney because of our CIT actions, but we could take them. So they've seen a reduction. But, you know, like I said, COVID messed up. Right. For all of us, so many things. (laughs) It's just, it's sort of overwhelmed the system. We're working through it. We're not going to quit producing and doing what we need to do. 
Well, I think it's also pushed us to be more creative in what we're doing and finding, you know, different resources and then really helped expose where we need to add because we were at capacity in a lot of places before COVID happened. So now I think that the community has become more aware of, okay, this is an issue. It's overwhelming our hospitals. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, before COVID, we met with the hospitals quarterly, ones that deal with mental health and Connell Regional actually it's, We've seen a drop in emergency room time because we were diverting people straight to Tri-County instead of to the hospital. So they, you know, and it's minutes in emergency rooms. They, they've seen a, a good drop in minutes on how long patients were in. If a person goes to a hospital, they have 72 hours for a warrant is issued. You know, Tri-County will send a, a person to talk to them at the hospital in most cases. Then a warrant's issued, and then we get the warrant to pick the person up and take them to a mental health facility. A lot of times, those people there probably shouldn't have been in the hospital. But that's what we're trying to make. Does that make sense? Right. We're trying to. to More of that. It's hard to do because uh, it can be 24 7. But if the person has ingested drugs and all that, then they have to go to the hospital. Or if they had a. uh, Some cases are so violent that the emergency medical crews have to put ketamine in them to calm them down just to get them to the hospital. When they're in full psychosis and combative, it's scary, Mm -hmm. but it's something that has to be done. I've worked inpatient psych for many years at a locked unit, and it is scary. So I greatly appreciate you guys because I'm not that big of a person. So when that happens, I mean, you really have to draw on your skills of being able to talk someone down well, and, and things like that. You know, something I've, you know, I worked in special crimes, narcotics and vice, and, and we did a lot of dealing with a lot of violent people, overwhelming them with law enforcement. I've had more people hurt in mental health, dealing with their mental health consumer than I did working all the other stuff in my career. I mean, it's they can get very violent from calm to violent very quick, and that's what the families are dealing with mm-hmm. at home. And we deal with them. They can have violent outbursts very quickly and hurt officers. It's, it's not uncommon. I have one out right now with a hand injury. It's just not uncommon for that to happen. But when you're dealing with them day in, day in, it's going to happen. The numbers are there. But it's just trying to de-escalate and provide our guys with the tools. And, you know, it, but it, if you, you've been around mental health people, their whole thing can change their attitude in, in a matter of seconds from calm to violent. Or violent to calm. That's where a lot of training comes in. Training is very important. Well, shifting gears just a little bit, you said that you wanted to talk a little bit about what Montgomery County is doing as far as the drugs that have been coming in and taking some new steps to address that. I've had two meetings with the high-intensity drug trafficking area. uh, That's that's called HIDA. Houston was the original uh, HIDA cities. Montgomery County falls under the Houston HIDA. HIDAs are a task force of federal and state and local officers that mainly work on narcotics offenses. Money laundering, it's a big thing that they started started with five cities. Now it's every major city in America has a HIDA. Then they have HIDA groups. One of the HIDA groups is a new addition to HIDA is a overdose where we can monitor where overdoses are happening in our community. It's a pilot program. The Montgomery County Sheriff's Department in our county is going to be the Primary lead agency, they're the largest. They have narcotics divisions. Our EMS, we're trying to get EMS on board. 
our other law enforcement partners, but it will help direct us to areas in our community where we're seeing a spike in overdoses. A lot of times overdoses, law enforcement doesn't get called. Mm-hmm. So we, I am Melissa pick somebody up because they're not feeling well. They get between there and the hospital, they figure out, hey, this guy's overdosed. This program will, will be able to immediately, it's ran through Baltimore, Maryland. It's a, a real easy app that they're going to put on phones where the person sends it, you know, the EMS or complete law enforcement goes to Baltimore and it'll show us every geographical location in the county where we've had overdoses. And usually it's an opioid type drug, phenytoin or, or heroin mm-hmm. or a prescription. But it will show us that. And if we see an area that's overwhelmed with, you know, four or five overdoses in the last 24 hours, we know there's some bad drugs on the street. So it gives us an opportunity to approach it. It's also could involve a, a lot of education. That's where my agency, we have a Willis Independent School District. We're going to have some of our officers trained on, once again, teaching about the drug issues. It's federally funded. It's a great program. Also, the Narcan, what they've started doing is dealing with people that are prone to addicts, to overdosing, and training them how to use Narcan. But a lot of cases, they won't quit using it. And they usually use it around friends mm-hmm. uh, where they're trained, and they'll have Narcan. And all our officers have Narcan through a grant. And this is going to increase that. So we're trying to save lives. Even, you know, people say just let them die. Whatever. These are humans with a drug addiction. So we don't want them to die. We want them to get treatment. You know, and on the law enforcement side, a lot of their treatment starts with an arrest. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked on that side of the court-ordered uh, drug rehab, drug court-ordered urine testing. And sometimes it's weekly. I've seen judges make them do it daily for a period of time. Every day they got to take a urine test. We have drug courts now in Montgomery County that deal with that, trying to help these drug addicts get off of the drug, get off of, of the downhill spiral. This is also going to involve all the organizations in our county, the private organizations, the churches, everybody that deals with addictions and stuff. It's, it's going to be a good program. It's starting. It's here. And I'm excited about it. I mean, it's just something that it's another something we can provide the community as law enforcement and the community can help support the program also. And there's going to be a lot of uh, training in it. it. It's all paid for through HIDA. It's just a great organization. Well, I'm really excited about that. And I think that there are a lot of families. We have Overdose Awareness Day on August 31st, which I know you guys are participating in. And they're going to have Narcan training there as well. But those are families that have lost loved ones to overdose and are very passionate about helping our community be educated because it can, just like we talked about with mental health, addiction impacts. It doesn't discriminate either. So so the people are your neighbors and your friends and your family. And so it's important to, to be aware of that. And I'm really so glad to hear that that's coming because overdoses have increased 30% since COVID. And we know that that can continue to rise. Well, we're seeing, you know, on the, on the narcotic side of it, you know, my agency, I have a detective assigned to the Drug Enforcement Administration as a task force officer dealing directly with doctors and pharmacies that are overprescribing opioids to uh, the community. And a lot of our overdoses are from prescription, legitimate prescription medications. Mm-hmm. And that's a very successful program. And it's tied into this new program. I know our sheriff's department here has, has people working on that, on overdoses where people have passed, tracking down where they got their drugs and who all was involved. And 
they've been successful in that also. You know, you got to give them kudos. Cause, yes. Uh, they don't get extra people. They just take on another responsibility. And I worked with a lot of those guys for in my career, and I think they're doing a tremendous job. But uh, it's another issue that law enforcement, you know, everybody wants law enforcement to take care of those issues. So we're, we're working really hard on it. The borders right now are open. We're seeing a lot of our fentanyl, which is the like a heroin, mm-hmm. synthetic heroin, went up tremendously, and it's being shipped all over the country. In law enforcement, the way you tell if if we're being successful is if the prices go up or down on cocaine and heroin and fentanyl. Right now, the prices are low because there's so much. They're flooding the market. Same thing with methamphetamine. When it first hit the streets, it was seventeen hundred an ounce, and it's a hundred, two hundred an ounce in some places. Three hundred. That means it's they're overwhelming us. The drug cartels in Mexico are overwhelming the United States with illicit drugs, and sadly, fentanyl is taking off. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very deadly. A little bit can kill a whole room of people. So it's even dangerous for the police officers to be around it and handling it when they seize it. Because if you inhale it or whatever, it can be a dosage can stop your heart. You know, we had a pain pill issue. The great, you know, Houston became the pain pill mm-hmm. capital. We had him here in Montgomery County and we were successful in shutting them down. But what happened, we had a whole generation of people, a lot of younger people, getting addicted to opioid drugs, the prescription drugs. And now they've turned, it's cheaper to buy heroin or fentanyl than it is to buy prescription pills. So we're sometimes it seems like we, we shoot ourselves in the foot when we try to prevent enough problem, it starts another problem. But what I've seen is a lot of younger people, you know, in their 30s, 20s and 30s, when you start seeing overdoses and for these strong drugs like that, it's, you know, it's different for our community. I can give you that. It's, I've been... You know, the three decades of service in this community, I've seen the different drug trends, but it's, this one's really bad. And it's a lot of young people are experimenting with it. Well, and they don't realize necessarily that they're laced with, you know, other things. And then I think a lot of our athletes get injured and put on, you know, op- opioids, and then it starts that trend. I know that that's the story of several that are participating in this overdose awareness and then they just were never able to get off. So then they turned to the street drugs. And One thing we've seen, and this has been going on for a few years now, and it's really taken off, is counterfeit pills. Mm-hmm. They look like a prescription pill, but you never know what's in them. Um, where it could be a hydrocodone pill, and it has phenytol in it. Now you have a Xanax that has methamphetamine in it. It looks like a Xanax. It's late, but it's, it's methamphetamine. Ecstasy is an illegal drug, but... They're putting methamphetamine instead of the MDMA, and it looks just like an ecstasy pill, but it's got methamphetamine in it. So that's where a lot of the accidental overdoses are coming from. They're thinking they're taking something that, you know, when you get it prescribed, you know what two pills are going to do to you. When two pills of fentanyl is not two pills of hydrocodone. Mm-hmm. So they overdose themselves. And it's accidental overdose because they didn't. They didn't know what they were taking. It looks like a prescription pill, but it's not. And that's really big in the in the market right now on the street, you know, with the street dealers and stuff. So, But a lot of these pills are made in Mexico. A lot of them are made right here in the United States. And I know that there's groups watching these people and trying to find them, and they do it in a garage. They mix the binders and, and the illicit drug and have pill presses. They make some of them are electric pill presses and make thousands of pills an hour. They look like a legitimate prescription pill. So. 
That's an issue. That is an issue, yes. Because, you know, a person that uses prescription drugs only thinks they're taking a prescription drug. Right. And it's not a prescription drug. And I think it's important for families to know about that because they need to know what to look for. That's correct. And how to educate their kids. And also, if there is an accidental overdose, let EMS know when they're there, this is what we think he's taken this in the past. So they have an understanding. You know, they will administer Narcon right there on the ambulance, but they need to know, you know, that's not a time to try to hide your kid's drug problem or your husband or wife or somebody you know. drug. Let the EMS know this is what we think he was on, you know, whether it's a methamphetamine overdose or a heroin overdose, whatever it is, let them know. I mean, that's critical. We're, they're trying to save that person's life. And every, you know, more information they have, the better it is. So important. Y'all are doing so many great things in the community. And so I really appreciate you coming in and talking about all this because I think we really want to make sure the community knows about you guys as a resource and can draw upon that so we can help our systems work better as well as really positively impact the people who are suffering. We always end with a story of hope. What would you like to leave the audience with today? (laughs) You know, it just... It takes, you know, everybody else talks about the village, you know, the mm-hmm. raising child. It's when people have problems, whether it's mental health or drug addiction, it takes the love and care of a family to a lot of times to bring that person into recovery or to help them if they have a mental health issue, to watch them, to monitor them. Even if they're grown children or, or even kids taking care of their, you know, grown kids taking care of their parents if they have issues. In my career, I've seen a lot of people relapse in narcotics. The ones I've seen that were successful. And I'm a believer in Christ. Usually have faith-based recovery. You know, their families are involved in the church or, or they get them involved in the church. And they have the support and love of their family, even in their worst times. I have family members and my, you know, everybody can say they have a family member that has a problem. We've had them in, in my family. And the turnaround, I think, is the families showing the love and also faith-based get God back in their lives. I get letters and texts and I'm on Facebook from people I've dealt with 10 years ago that were the worst drug people you deal in drugs and stuff on drugs. Now they're married with kids, families, and they've turned their lives around. It means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. They don't see that, but I've got a deal of letters I've received over the years from people who were up at my arrest or dealing with them, the way I treated them. And they turn their lives around. But one thing I see that's probably the most common is they have some kind of faith-based group helping them. When I say yeah, that could be the family, they can start bringing them back to church, get them in these. A lot of churches have the uh, AA programs or drug programs where they pray with them, they work with them. They know they're going to relapse. They bring them back in the fold. But it takes a lot of people to help one person. Another drug addict cannot help a drug addict. Does that make sense? Right. Well, not when you're both in the pit. No. <laughs> they both need help. Right. A lot of a lot of uh, counselors you meet are ex-drug addicts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they know they're an addict for the rest of their life. Just an alcoholic is an alcoholic for the rest of their life. But they're not using drugs. And they can tell you I'm seven years sober, I'm eight years sober. Those people are amazing. And there's a lot of them out there. They've turned their lives around and, and they help. And I know a lot of the churches and a lot of the Different religions have, we meet with them. We'll come to your church, to your counselors or whatever, and we'll talk about mental health. I mean, we, we, we've done that several times. It takes that in our community 
and if, and of course the family. It's hard for a, a, an addict to turn his life around if he don't think his family cares about him anymore. You know, and, and a lot of them have stole from their families. They've hurt their families. The families have spent lots of money trying to help them, and they finally give up. But you can't ever give up on a person. I mean, that's that's not what we're about. So just give them. We're talking about hope. That gives them hope. And, and it's miraculous when they turn around. It so, is. God does good things. Yeah. We always say we get a front row seat to miracles. Because <laughs> just when you think someone's at their lowest and there's just nothing that can be done, you know, as long as there's breath, there's hope. So, well, thank you so much. How can someone get a hold of the Mental Health Constables? It's on our website, but I want to have this on the podcast as well. Yeah, also Precinct 1 Montgomery County is on the, on the website. Uh, our office number is 936-539-7821, or you can all cl- also call the non-emergency number at Montgomery County Sheriff's Department. They will transfer you to a mental health officer or get a message to them to call you. A lot of times they're out on the streets, but uh, if you call during office hours, if one's there, they'll speak with you. If not, we'll reach out to one and have them call you. If it's an emergency, always dial 911, no matter where you're at. We're here to help. We care, and we're here for you. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting us figure this one. Y'all have a great day. 